All right, we're going to go ahead and start with the 148th Psalm today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heaven of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the ability to come out here and to just praise you. And thank you for waking each person here up today and bringing them out here and uh, giving them health and uh, happiness in their hearts. And I thank you for the beautiful weather you've given us and for every good blessing that comes from your hand. Thank you. And we just want to give you praise and glory for that. You're a wonderful, wonderful creator, and you've given us just joy in our hearts and friendship among each other and food on our tables, everything that we need just to turn around and praise you and how often we forget to do so. So remind us in our hearts and in our souls to just give you the praise that you are due. All these things I ask in the beautiful and the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, I got just a couple of announcements here today. We have, um, uh, oh, I want to, you know, even before I go to any of these things, I want to mention that Darlene here, this is voting week coming up, actually not this week, but the week after, but we've already started early voting in Sarasota. Darlene is running for the Sarasota, uh, go ahead and tell me what the title is, State Committee, State Committee Woman for the Republican Party. She is very, very pro-life. She is uh, the head of the uh, abortion movement in Sarasota, along with one other person, uh, Jim Steyer. Well, yes, yeah, anti-abortion or against abortion, but she is she is the one that really chairs this. She takes care of it. She gets people organized. She started uh, uh, the Freedom of Religion rally uh, a couple months ago. We had out at the Bayfront. Several thousand people showed up. All began by her. So I would ask that anybody in Sarasota, and particularly people that are watching, would be willing to step forward and vote for Darlene Harvey. And uh, yes, this is a political statement in a uh, church in environment. And I'm not uh, tax exempt and I couldn't give doodly squat if anybody doesn't like that. I support the right to life and this woman does. And so to me, that's the most important issue of all. And it is the issue that this nation is going to fall on if we don't get it corrected. That's all there is to it. The Lord will not be mocked and our actions towards the unborn are absolutely critical to taking care of them, or we're going to be swept away. I'm sure of that. The only other issue that is even close to that is our support of the nation of Israel. And together, those two issues form the central heart of God. I am certain of it. His love of the children of the world, which will eventually grow up into the people of the world, and his love for the people and the land of Israel, which he has given to them, and which we'll talk about today. Um, you all know this, I say it week after week, and everybody on YouTube knows this as well, that I am looking for a church to preach at. Uh, I would hope that that would come along someday. If it doesn't, that's fine. But, uh, you know, we get rain, we get uh, mosquitoes, we get other things out here. Uh, numbers change quite a bit because of the uh, elements and uh, the things that affect the church on the beach. So please, if you hear of a job opening as a preacher at a church... I have no desire to do anything else other than to preach from God's word, but that's where my heart and desire is. Um, I, pray, prayer request that I would ask you to remember is Paul and Elaine over in Japan. Uh, they're still uh, there. They're our missionaries from the church on the beach that uh, we support right from this little church. And so uh, I would like them to be remembered as they do their mission work over there. Um, Kelly said that she may have to leave early. And if she does, I would hope that she'd stand up and act like she's in a huff at something I said and storm out of here. I think that would be kind of uh, kind of cute. Anyway, uh, if you see her leave, it's because she's got to take her daughter to work. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm forgetting anything else. 
Uh, if anybody needs to be baptized, it's never been scripturally baptized. Of course, we have the water right over there, and I'm willing to do that any day of the week. Uh, if somebody has made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask them that, and I'm going to ask them if they're willing to follow him in believer's baptism, and that's all I'm going to ask them. And I'm going to put them under the water and hopefully remember to bring them back out of the water. Other than that, um, uh, I'd like to go ahead and go to Romans chapter 3 for our weekly New Testament reading. We're going to read the entire chapter, and it's leading towards uh, some wonderful uh, information in the weeks ahead. But uh, I won't give a lot of commentary, but I will stop a couple times, I'm sure. Romans 3, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, meaning the Bible. They were committed to the Jewish people, they were the stewards of them, and they maintained them for thousands of years while God's uh, revelation was slowly unfolding. There are only a couple of books in the entire Bible that were not written by Jews. In the Old Testament, it is possible that Job was written by a non-Jew if Job wrote the book himself. It may have been uh, actually compiled and written by a Jew. We don't know, but that would be one exception. The other two exceptions are both in the New Testament, and they are the books of Luke and um, Acts, because Luke was a Gentile, and we know this from the last chapter of the book of Colossians. If you want to read that, you can find out how you know that Luke was not a Jew. But the Jewish people are the ones that maintain these documents, and they gave them to the world. For what, uh, if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not is his answer, and of course not. He's saying if our, let me read that again so you understand what he's saying. If our unrighteousness, the things we do wrong, demonstrates the righteousness of God, is God unjust? Paul says, of course not, certainly not. For then, how would God judge the world? He's the creator. He is entitled to judge his creatures. Our unrighteousness is a part of what is coming in his judgment. For If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? The point that he's making is that if my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then maybe I can be more unrighteous, which demonstrates even more unrighteousness. I mean, more righteousness than God, showing his abundant mercy. And he's going to make a point about this. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The Jews have the law. They're going to be judged by the law. The people that are not Jewish will be judged apart from the law. But we're all under sin. We all inherited Adam's sin, and we've all sinned apart from the original sin of Adam as well. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. I want to say something on these verses before we go on. Uh, uh, The doctrine of Calvinism, strong Calvinism, says that uh, uh, we cannot choose Jesus Christ, that God predestined us to salvation, which the Bible does teach, but that our free will is not involved in that choice, that we are somehow irresistibly brought to God and some are passed over. Okay, and they use these verses in that logic. Now, listen to what it says. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Okay, I'm going to continue reading that quote in a second. But what he does is he quotes the 53rd Psalm, actually the 14th and the 53rd Psalm, which both say they begin with the same words. And who is he speaking to? It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then he goes on and he says, there is none who does good, etc. in those Psalms. Well, he's specifically speaking about atheists, people that say that there is no God. He is not speaking about people in general. And they say that nobody seeks after God based on what Paul is saying here. But I will ask a question to you and just answer it. it it's obvious. Are Muslims seeking after God? The answer is yes. They're just doing it wrong. 
Are Jehovah's Witnesses seeking after God? The answer is yes, they're just doing it wrong. Do you see the logic there? That's the, the dilemma that we're facing with these particular verses is, do we choose God or do we not choose God? And that is based on what denomination you're in and who has trained you. But the Bible makes it very clear that God uh, uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Belief is an act of the volitional will. It's not forced on us. Forced belief is not belief. Forced love is not love. We have to choose God or he's making the choice for us and there is no true appreciation of what he's done. So these verses here, which are often used by strong Calvinists to say that we do not choose God, that he sovereignly, he does choose us, but it works both ways. And here's an example to help you think this through. You are going into the gates of heaven and it says here, everybody come who is so willing. And you walk through those gates and you turn around and you look at the back of the gate and it says, I have chosen you from before the foundation of the world. God's foreknowledge about our choice exists, but it is still our choice. Just because he knows what we are going to choose does not mean that we choose. We don't choose, we do. I know that's a little confusing, but this is a very important point that denominational lines are divided based on this concept. When it says, once again, that there's none righteous and there's none who understands and none who seeks after God, it is speaking about the atheist. It's quoting that Psalm from 14, and Psalm 53. Please keep that in mind. We do choose. And that's why there are evangelists out there in the world speaking about Jesus. That's why we send Paul and Elaine to Japan to tell people about Jesus Christ. There has to be a messenger and the message has to be received and it has to be accepted or there is now no salvation. Okay. I'm going to give you one more example to help you think this clearly because this is such an important issue and we'll move on. Ducks going down a river. Those ducks see Jesus on the side of the, the river, and he's saying, come to me, okay? Some people would say that the ducks just go down the river, okay, except the ones that Jesus grabs and he pulls out. And all the other ducks are going off to hell, but he pulls out these ducks. Some, which would be me, would say that those ducks are called and they voluntarily swim over to Jesus, and he hands them the bread of life. Okay, do you see the difference? They have chosen to leave there and the other ducks have chosen not to come to Jesus. There is one more possibility and this is what is called hyper-Calvinism and it is absolutely a disgusting premise in my mind. But it actually is the same thing as strong Calvinism as if you think it through, is that not only does Jesus take some of them out of the water, but he actually pushes the other ones down to hell. Okay, but in the end, the result is the same, whether you have strong or hyper-Calvinism. Those ducks are off to hell without being given free choice. And I do not accept that. I accept that those ducks were called by Jesus Christ. They came off of the water onto the land and they ate the bread that he gave them. Do you see the, the difference though? And this is a very, very important difference. And each person that reads the Bible must come to the resolution in their own mind as to whether they choose Jesus or whether they don't choose Jesus. I am certain of that. Okay, we'll finish up with that quote in verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mercy are in their way. Misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Once again, are there people in the world that are not Christians that have the fear of God in them? The answer is yes. But these cannot, therefore, be all-inclusive statements. They can't be. All right. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no one is justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I've explained this several times. I'll explain it real quickly. The two overarching purposes of the law are one, to show us how utterly sinful sin is in human beings and how desperately we need Jesus Christ. And the second uh, premise is based on that first one, to lead us to Jesus Christ, to say, I am so sinful. I know that I can never please God with anything I do in my life. Therefore, I'm going to come to Jesus Christ. I know he can do it for me. All right, and he says that. He says, um, 
the whole world may be guilty before God. In other words, how utterly sinful sin is. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The witness of the law and the prophets is that Jesus fulfilled them on our behalf. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it, and fulfill it he did. Righteousness does not come from the law. Righteousness comes from Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf, okay? Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The word propitiation there comes from an Old Testament concept. The translation is from the word hilasterion. The hilasterion in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. He is the place where happiness is restored between God and man. The blood was shed of the animal and it was placed on the mercy seat saying, oh God, have mercy for me, a sinner. And that's what we do when we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We say, I am a sinner. His blood has been shed for me and I accept what has been placed on this altar and I now have a propitious or restored relationship with God, a happy relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. I think I'm in verse 27. I, let me go back. I think 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God both is just, but he also is the justifier. He is the one that has executed everything necessary for us to have a right and restored relationship with God. It is the most glorious and wonderful thing that has ever happened in human history. It is beyond comprehension what Jesus Christ did. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What? Paul is saying here, and we can just make a mental picture of ourselves walking up to heaven and saying, I'm here and I have nothing to offer that got me here. It is all by the blood of Jesus Christ and by nothing else. There is no thing that we can add to our salvation than accepting what Jesus Christ has done. Works are entirely excluded, entirely. Any works that we do come after salvation and they are for the purpose of uh, uh, helping out the kingdom and bringing in the kingdom and doing righteousness simply for the sake of Jesus Christ. But nothing that we do, and this is important to understand because there are denominations out there and there are cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses that think they're working their way to heaven. They're adding their deeds to what Christ has done. And it's saying, in effect, that Christ is insufficient, that I have to add to what Christ has done. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? By what law? Of works? No, by a faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, also of the Gentiles. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law is not made void by our faith, the law is established by our faith. We understand the need for the law because we have faith in Jesus Christ. We say, boy, did that law serve a good purpose. It showed me how sinful I was. It showed me that I needed Jesus Christ and it led me right to him. Thank you for the law. But apart from the law, we wouldn't understand the great workings of Jesus Christ. All right, real quickly, I've got an Old Testament reading to give you. I'm not gonna give any commentary on it at all. I'm just going to read it as if it was a psalm, but it's a beautiful passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, for you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. 
it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the nation, terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce, reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished, and in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands, the fortress of the high fort of your walls. He will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust, the word of the Lord. Okay, we... Uh, are going to speak today on Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. It's entitled, The Father of Many Nations. Now, before I do, I want to tell the people that do watch this on video, because some of them may not know this. I think I've said it before. But eventually, we're going to get this buzzing sound in the uh, audio, and that is these uh, crickets. They, they seem to come around every week about halfway through the sermon. I hear one starting right now, and it starts making this unusual noise. It is not your computer. It is the crickets. So... If you think of it from that perspective, then it kind of makes the sermon uh, enjoyable. There they go right now, as soon as I start speaking on the sermon. Um, before we get into Genesis, uh, though, you know, every week I like to do this day in history, and uh, it's no different today. I'd like to uh, give you uh, what happened on this day in history, and I think you said today is the 6th of uh, uh, August? The 5th of August. Today is the 5th of August, and in 1833, the village of Chicago was incorporated. And at that time, there were 250 people in the town of Chicago. Uh, today, there are 2.7 million people in Chicago, and 165,000 of them are dead people who are voting in each election. So there you go. That's the uh, city of Chicago in a nutshell. In 1861, the U.S. federal government levied its very first income tax. Wasn't that great? The tax was 3% of all incomes over $800, and it was a wartime measure only, and it was rescinded in 1872. So at the time that the income tax came out, it was a desperate measure to fund the war, and after that, they canceled the income tax. And now it's become an addiction that the, 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 the uh, Congress and the president and uh, the uh, Senate, they just can't get away from it, as they have to keep increasing our taxes and increasing them. And the bondage is becoming more and more on the American taxpayer. But it was not always that way. In 1884, on Bedloe's Island in New York Harbor, the cornerstone of the Statue of Liberty was laid. And exactly 60 years later to the day, Polish insurgents liberated a German war camp in Warsaw, and 348 Jewish prisoners were freed. And at that time, uh, Eisenhower, not with this particular freeing, but at the time of the uh, uh, freeing of the Jewish people from these concentration camps, Eisenhower went in and he said, I want everything on film. I want every picture taken possible. I want movies taken of everything you see, because at some point in the future, people are going to deny that this has happened. And that is exactly, even with the films, even with overabundance of evidence that the Holocaust occurred, People are denying it in the world today. And so we need to be vigilant because the things that are happening in the world are spiraling out of control, even with the evidence, which is so abundantly overwhelming. Anyway, here we go. Genesis 17, 1 through 8, a father of many nations. Now, the Bible, in the Bible, there are certain figures that are noted. Above all, they are noted for one or two particular aspects of their person and their demeanor. 
Job, for example, is the Bible's best-known example of patience in suffering. If you've ever read the first two chapters of Job, it can make you cry just thinking what the man went through. Solomon is especially noted for his wisdom. Moses is known for his humility. In fact, uh, the Lord said he's the most humble man on earth. David is known for the depth of his emotions and his often strong passions and also his great heart for God. King Ahab, if you know the story of him, is known for a mixture of wickedness and weakness. And of course, we have Korah, who was known for his rebellion against God. And I was thinking about Korah this morning, as here just a few lines are recorded about the guy. And yet throughout history, he's known simply because he rebelled against God and against God's people. And I was thinking how that fits in with our own nation today and our own rebellion against God and the things that we're doing. And is that the way this nation is going to ultimately be remembered? And I would pray that's not the case. Finally, we have a man named Achan who was known for his covetous heart. It's in the book of Joshua. You read about what happened there. And his coveting didn't just cost him his life. It cost him the life of his entire family. So we uh, remember these people based on these things. The Bible does not sugarcoat the faults of its heroes, and it doesn't hide the evil that men commit. If you personally could be remembered for one or two particular aspects or for being like one or two particular people, who or what would you choose personally? And this is just Charlie Garrett. I would like to be known as a mixture of Abraham and David, a man of faith and a man with a heart for God. And I was thinking about that this morning as well and how often I fail in both of those. My faith gets weak. My heart for God gets sidetracked with all kinds of issues, lesser issues, which are absolutely unimportant in the great scheme of things. So think about what you would do with your own life if you could be like one of these people and your deeds were going to be recorded forever because they are and they will be exposed for all eternity. Live for God now and have that heart for God that he would want you to have. Today we're going to continue right through the life of Abraham, and in the verses ahead, we will see where God changes his name from Avram to Abraham, and this is done in conjunction with the continued unfolding of God's promise to this great man of faith in the Bible. In both Testaments, and in many passages in both Testaments, it is faith for which he is noted. I was reading as my daily reading this morning. Luke 1, I got up to chapter 3 before I had to get into sending out all my morning things. But in Luke 1, Abraham and his faithfulness and God's promise to him is mentioned right there in the Magnificat, where Mary spoke her great words of praise of God's deeds in her own life when she met with her cousin Elizabeth. So Abraham is well noted in the Bible for these things. And I can assure you that God, above all else, God looks for faith in his wayward creatures. This is what is noted as what is pleasing to him, if you simply have faith. Our text verse for today comes from Deuteronomy, it's chapter 1, verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness. It was for about 38 years until all of the disobedient generation had passed. Then, when they were at Mount Horeb, they received the final words of instruction from Moses, and they proceeded into the land that was promised to them so very long before. It was 430 years earlier when the original promise was made to Abraham, back in Genesis 12. The Lord has always kept his promises, and he will continue to do so, even in our own time and even in our own lives. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. That brings us to our first thought of the day. It is a blameless walk before the Lord. This is Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Avram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. In the past chapters, we have seen the promise of God, the land promise, on several occasions that he would, he and his descendants would inherit the land in which he was standing. The first promise came, as I said, in chapter 12 of Genesis. God repeated in chapter 13 of Genesis. And then we had chapter 14, where was, there's great battle between the four kings and the five kings. And after that, uh, 
Avram at the time went down and met Melchizedek and he received God's blessing over the bread and the wine. And then the promise was again restated in chapter 15. And when it was, these words were spoken to Avram. Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And John explains fear for God's people in his first epistle. It's a very important verse to remember. There is no fear in love. The perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, Abram is 99 years old, and it has been 13 years since his maidservant, Hagar, bore him his son, Ishmael. And for all he knows, this is the son of promise that he had waited so long for. And he is raising Ishmael in this fashion and without fear. But now God appears to him again. And instead of saying to him, do not fear, he states that he is almighty God or El Shaddai. This revelation of himself, God calling himself El Shaddai is one of existence and it is one of performance. He is the eternally lasting absolute, all-powerful God. His nature is unchangeable, and yet he causes change in his creation. In the book of Joel and in the book of Isaiah, El Shaddai or Shaddai is the destructive power which is transcendent over all things. We read this about Shaddai in the book of Isaiah. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. That is Shaddai. Therefore, all hands will be limp Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. In the day of the Lord, the destructions and workings of God are termed as destruction from Shaddai. There is both a judicial and a punitive power in the performance of this terrifying name. Because of this, Holiness is the hallmark of the name Shaddai. When man sins, his holy nature is violated. And so because of this, it is an act against who he is. And so he acts accordingly. And yet at the same time, El Shaddai is also a reconstructive power. He builds new that which he has laid waste. And we'll see that after the tribulation period, which Isaiah was talking about, God is going to rebuild that which has been laid waste. He, therefore, El Shaddai, is the God of providence and abundant supply. All of this is tied up in God's potency. When it is combined with a promise, such as the one that is given to Avram, it gives man a basis for faith. If God be for us, who can stand against us? Because of this proclamation, I am El Shaddai, he says to Avram, walk before me and be blameless. Before he spoke comfort to Avram, he gave him these great words, do not be afraid. But now he's speaking words of admonition and resolute purpose. This is a command and it is a rule for the guidance of his life and it is a direction for the conduct in his life. During the past 13 years, Avram probably considered all of the promises as being fulfilled in Ishmael. He is now old and he has the child that he believes is the child of promise. And he's rejoiced in it and he's thanked God for it. He has no reason to doubt any future promises because the past ones have come to pass. It is as if he is saying out loud to us, I have Ishmael and I know that God hears and he responds. I am content in this. Now the Lord says something new to him. Walk before me and be blameless. So to walk before the Lord in this way, the Hebrew terminology does not mean taking literal steps. It's a metaphor for having completely detailed accounting for every step that you take or every action that you take in your life. It includes the thoughts of your mind. It includes the words that come out of your lips. It is the very heart and it is the very intent of every action. And Jesus built upon this when he said that I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her already. Or if you hate your brother in your heart, it is as if you have murdered him already. This is what God is telling Avram right now, is to walk before me and be blameless in every aspect of who you are. And then we have another 
term within the term, which is before me. Walk before me and be blameless. This is the word lefanai, and literally it would be translated before my face. And we know it's a metaphor because El Shaddai does not have a face. He is the power and the presence of God working through the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And so walking before him is an axiom. It's something that we all do all the time, whether we realize it or not. Every move before him is detailed, and he sees all of it. And so an explanation is given in addition to it. And be blameless. Remember what I quote week after week after week is Acts 17. In him we live and move and have our being. And all the people of the world that don't consider these things don't consider that every single action of their life is in the presence of God. Everything we do is exposed right there. And so that's why he's given those words and be blameless. Be blameless. All of us need to remember this. Avram, you are to always be perfect before me. For you, this is more than just a sincere and yet imperfect walk. You are to be perfect in your actions and in your heart. Be sincere in both through the upright and holy conduct of your life. Righteousness was credited back in chapter 15 to Avram for his faith. And when the covenant was established, that occurred. But now a blameless walk before God is needed for the continuation and the confirmation of that covenant. At my house, we have a beehive. I live right down the road here, and we may have some of the bees flying around us because you may not know this, but bees fly out six miles beyond their hive. And they have to pollinate over a million flowers in order to get a single quart of honey. So we have these bees flying around. They might come from the beehive at my house. But in that hive are what we call forms, and that's where the comb is built up on it, and that's where the honey is stored. And we have to take the forms out, and we cut off the, the wax from the outside, and we let the uh, honey drip out of it. And then it goes into a container, and we separate the wax from the honey. But there's always a little bit of wax that's floating around the honey that you can't see, and it will affect the purity of the honey unless it's removed. The word sincere is believed to have come from two words. They're Latin words, sine and sera, which means without wax. To perfectly purify the honey, we take a pair of pantyhose of all things, and we put the pantyhose over a funnel, because the pantyhose have the finest mesh that's possible, and we pour the honey through the pantyhose. And the wax that we couldn't even see before we began the process accumulates into this little pile right there in the middle of the, the uh, funnel in these pantyhose. And when we are done, that honey is completely pure, and it is without any wax. It is sincere. This is the state that Avram is being called to right here. And I can assure you that along with Avram, the Lord would ask each one of us to likewise be holy and upright in our conduct. And this isn't just an arbitrary truth because we have a little angel sitting on our shoulder here. It is because we as Christians bear the name of Jesus Christ. When we fail to walk in a manner that's holy, then we see other Christians, or when we see other Christians failing to act in, a, act in a manner that's holy, people notice that. And then they use a term about Christians. What is the term you hear all the time? Hypocrites. They call us hypocrites because we are supposed to be walking holy before God, and we don't. Avram is walking among the Canaanites. He's walking among the Amorites, and they see his conduct, and they see how he responds to the call of God in his life. And we also are walking in the land of the Philistines. And we are walking among the pagan people of the world. And God wants each one of us to walk in that same holy and upright conduct. Because if we don't, those people are going to know and they are going to judge us as hypocrites. Of course, there are always the people out there that see that we are living upright. And that does happen. And they ignore us anyway. And they point at us anyway. But normally it is our failings that others see and they make their value judgments against. And so the Lord would ask each one of us to walk before him and be blameless. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples and in turn to us. Remember, I've quoted this 15 sermons in a row. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. And Peter says the same thing in both of his little letters at the end of the Old Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, he says this, 
Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Yes, fellow Christian, walk before the Lord and be blameless before him. Verse two, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. This is a command followed by a promise. I will make my covenant between me and you. Now, despite what most scholars say on the subject, I am in complete disagreement about what happened between Hagar and Avram when they had their son Ishmael. If you remember last week, I talked about it. Here's John Wesley's thoughts on that particular union. Full 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, so long the promise of Isaac was deferred, perhaps to correct Avram's over-hasty marrying of Hagar. And I told you I disagree with that entirely. What they did was culturally acceptable. Sarai knew that she was barren after 50 or so years of marriage, and so she gave her her maidservant in order to bear a child for her. I have no problem with what happened there. A promise was made, and it was appeared to be fulfilled in this son, Ishmael. Even what the Lord said to Hagar when she ran away and was out in the wilderness seemed to reflect that very sentiment. He told her at that time, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And this is very similar to what God just promised to Avram. When Hagar returned from running away, she would have told him what the Lord said. And to him, he would have thought certainly the promise in Ishmael is the promise that God has made to me. It is the fulfillment of the promise. I have no problem with that at all. But now he's told that the covenant would be established. Hearing this, this particular verse, Avram must have been a bit confused. The promise was given and the covenant was made even before the birth of Ishmael. And now he must question why it needed to be established when the boy's already 13 years old. It would be like saying to your own son, I'm going to make your birthday great. It will be the best day of your life. And so you take him out and you give him a wonderful day. You take him to all kinds of places and give him all kinds of gifts. And as you're heading home, he's happy and he's content with all the stuff he's got in the backseat of the car. It's late in the afternoon, but you say to him again, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. I'm going to make your birthday great. It'll be like, what are you talking about? This has already happened. But as you guys walk through the door, there's a surprise party and there's keys to a Maserati, and his girlfriend has been flown in from college, all to make his birthday great. Avram's surprise party is coming, and God is not going to disappoint, I assure you of that. Today, we are going to look at the setup for that party, but next week, we will be given the details. The promise of a seed comes forward as the prominent benefit of this covenant. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is a father of many nations. Verse 3, then Avram fell on his face. This is the Middle Eastern method of prostration used by many people even to this day. If you look at people praying in a mosque, this is what Avram would have done. person goes down to his knees, and then after that they lower their head to their knees, and after that they touch their forehead right on the earth itself. I can assure you it is not a comfortable position to be in, but it signifies great humiliation and reverence of God. And I can tell you something else. I thought about that this morning, is this is something that is lacking in both the church and in the individual Christian today. We have no reverence for God. When we meet, we just casually walk in the church, we blow through the church service and we blow right back out and the rest of the week we do not live holy. And I am as guilty of this as anybody. And so I'm bringing this up and letting you know that so you don't think I'm picking on anybody but we have a lack of reverence for the creator who shaped us with his own hands and he shaped us for his purposes. And we need to remember to not act that way. Avram fell on his face in the reverence and majesty of God and in acknowledgement of his unworthiness at the visit and of the promise it's given. He was probably completely overwhelmed at what was going on because all along he thought that Ishmael was the fulfillment of the promise but now he's being told that there's more than he realized. And so we'll continue with verse three. And God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father 
of many nations. There are two parties in this covenant. God is the first party, and he says, as for me, as for me, my covenant is with you. The Lord is making a guarantee based on his spoken word to Avram. If you remember back in Genesis 12, God made this promise. He said this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the nations or the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is now giving him both a restatement of the promise and a refinement of that promise as well. The term nations that he uses here, I will make you a father of many nations, is normally used when not speaking about the chosen people, but rather other branches of humanity. And he is told that he will be the father of many nations. And I assure you that it is going to be fulfilled in an amazing and an unsuspected way, both physically and spiritually. His literal physical descendants will come from both Ishmael and Isaac, who is yet to come. But he will also be the spiritual father of people from every nation group on earth. Paul explains this very clearly in Romans 4. Here we go. Let me read this to you again. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, meaning all believers. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And that brings us to verse five. No longer shall you be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And that's what I just quoted you from Romans 4, that Paul says, I have made you a father of many nations. In one verse, the Lord said, you shall be the father of many nations. Now, one verse later, he says, I have made you the father of many nations. The change from the future to the present tense in that one verse came about by one single definitive act, the renaming of Avram to Avraham. This name is given as a tangible pledge of the fulfillment of this covenant that God has spoken. Any name which the Lord gives cannot merely be the sounds of the letters as they're spoken, but they must be the very expression of something which is actual and tangible or will be fulfilled in that way. The Lord has personally renamed him. Rather than his mother, rather than anybody else, the Lord has named him, and that signifies both his authority over him and his completion of the promise in one single act. Any doubts or any anxieties about how things would transpire have certainly faded away from him. I assure you that Avram has no thoughts of any doubts ever again in his life. He has received an inheritance that is sure as the ground under his feet. And if you stamp your feet on the ground right now, go ahead and do that because I'm going to make a point here in a second. You feel how absolutely certain the ground is under your feet. The Lord makes promises and the Lord keeps his promises. The Bible is the written testament of those promises and that they will be fulfilled exactly as they're written. And in a similar mark of surety as to what just happened to Abraham, every person who is called on the name of Jesus Christ and saved by the blood of his cross has been given a new name as well. Now, I don't know if you know that. It's recorded right there in Revelation chapter two. Here's what it says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. And I'll tell you that anybody that overcomes is a person that is called on the name of Jesus. They are saved by the blood of Christ and it is a done deal. It is eternal in nature. You can never lose your salvation. He who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. There you go. Stamp your feet on the ground again, and that is as sure, it is absolutely as sure as the ground under your feet, that you have a new name and that God has purchased you by the blood of his own son. Although none of us know what our new name is yet, it is already recorded and it is engraved in stone if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. For those who haven't, other promises have been made and they will be fulfilled just as God has spoken. It is better by far 
to receive the promises which come through accepting Jesus rather than the promises which come through rejecting Jesus. And so I would ask that if you have never made sure of your salvation, you would do so before this day goes by. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. The promise of being exceedingly fruitful seems to be a redundancy here. But what I think is being relayed is the promise of actual children. He had Ishmael, and now he realizes that Ishmael isn't the only child that's going to be born to him. But this verse is the promise of many children. In addition to Ishmael, of course, we know Isaac is coming. We're going to see also, though, in chapter 25 of Genesis, we're going to read that he's going to have even more children than that. Here's what it says in chapter 25. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimram, Jakshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, and Jakshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephra, Hanak, Abidan, Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham all, gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. From his wife Keturah, he would have six sons. He also had sons from his concubines as well, and he probably had many daughters along with them. These became even more nations, all with their own kings, just as was promised. In all, Abraham was exceedingly fruitful. This verse then that I just read you, verse 6, is a physical fulfillment of an earthly, temporal blessing. The next verse will be a spiritual blessing a heavenly and eternal blessing. Here we go, verse seven. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. The covenant is established and it is what is termed in Hebrew, berit olam, or an everlasting covenant. It will never diminish. It will never fade away. It will never lessen. It will never fail. The Lord dealt with Adam, Adam, he dealt with Noah, and now he is dealing with Abraham. He will be his God and the God of his descendants after him. Now, Matthew Henry, the great scholar of ages past, what he said about this particular verse is so exact and so precise and so beautiful. I want to quote it to you in its entirety. Here's what he says. This covenant is not to be altered or revoked, not only with thee, meaning Abraham, not only with thee, then it would die with thee, but with thy seed after thee. And it is not only thy seed after the flesh, but the spiritual seed, meaning anybody who's called on Christ Jesus. It is everlasting in the evangelical meaning of it. The covenant of grace is everlasting. It is from everlasting in the counsels of it, and it is to everlasting in the consequences of it. And the external administration of it is transmitted with the seal of it, the seed to the seed of believers, and the internal administration of it by the Spirit to Christ's seed in every age. This is a covenant of exceeding great and precious promises. Here are two which indeed are all sufficient, that God would be their God. All the pr privileges of the covenant, all its joys and all its hopes are summed up in this. A man needs desire no more than this to make him happy. What God is himself, that he will be to his people. Wisdom to guide and counsel them, power to protect and support them, goodness to supply and comfort them, what faithful worshipers can expect from the God they serve, believers shall find in God as theirs. This is enough, yet it is not all. And that brings us to our third and final thought today, the land promise. There's one more verse, just one more verse to look at today. And it is a promise which is misunderstood, it is misapplied, it is mishandled, and it is generally mistaken. All of the words which the Lord has spoken to Abraham have their own circumstances and their own ultimate fulfillment. Each thought needs to be looked at in the context of all of the rest of the scripture. And I say that because some of this is a spiritual fulfillment. Some of this is a physical fulfillment. We went through that with the children. Oftentimes, misapplications of verses are made simply because God is still in the process of working things out in human history. There are also mistakes made when people knowingly or unknowingly attempt to insert themselves 
into promises which they are not entitled to. And I'll give you an example. People go to the book of Isaiah and they pull out a nice, cool sounding verse and they quote it about themselves and the people that they're hanging around with. Or they'll go to the book of Acts and they'll do that. Or they'll go to something that Jesus said and they will apply it to themselves even though it has nothing to do with the context of what they're saying. People knowingly or unknowingly do this all the time. When two or more are gathered together, you know, that one, everybody quotes that and saying, well, we're going to claim something in Jesus' name. It's talking about church discipline. It's not talking about asking Jesus to save somebody. But we misapply scripture because we've taken things out of context. That is one of the ways that these things happen. Sometimes, though, people knowingly twist things in order to personally benefit from others who are not willing to check things out for themselves. And that's why week after week after week after week, I say what to everybody here? Read your Bible. And don't trust Charlie Garrett, because I may be trying to twist something to get you to donate a lot of money to church on the beach, okay? You don't know the heart of other people, but people knowingly do these things. So understanding the promises of God and how they find their fulfillment can be tedious, it can be very difficult work, but when the true intent of a verse is known, it must be applied as God intends. The case of verse 8 of chapter 17 is just like this. Regardless of what has been said or believed in the past, a careful and thoughtful acceptance and the truth of this verse must be made. Regardless of our own personal biases, our own personal likes or dislikes, so please stand back and accept what God has revealed, not only in the book of Genesis about this verse, but in human history. And the reason why I say that is, goes back to what I said earlier, is that people will not understand what God is doing because God is working in human history. Well, in human history, in 1948, something happened that absolutely verifies the intent of this verse. And in 1967, it was even further refined. Israel became a nation again, and in 1967, they recaptured Jerusalem. And all of that is tied up directly in the verse that we're looking at right now. Verse 8. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is a land promise, and it is specifically speaking about the land in which he is standing and which today is known as the land of Israel. There is no spiritual application here. And we can know this 100%. We can know it 100% because in this verse, it is called the land of Canaan. This is the name of the physical land, the same land where Jesus walked. It's the same land that the physical descendants of Abraham live in today. And it is promised to them and to nobody else, not the church, not anybody else on earth. The promise is made by God, who is the creator of the land and the sovereign Lord over the nations. Therefore, there should be no dispute about whose land it is. He has spoken and he has ended the dispute and yet we continue to do so. We fight over this land which God has given to this group of people. In order to understand whose land it is today, we cannot stop with this verse or we will have a very large mess on our hands. How many people, how many people in the world today can trace their physical lineage back to Abraham? Billions. All of the Arabs, billions of people on the earth can trace their lineage back to Abraham. So why are not all of those people included in this promise? The reason why is because the promise was restated to one son and only one son, and that is Isaac. It comes in Genesis chapter 26. Here's what it says. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which, of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Now after Isaac, only one son is given this land promise. It is Jacob or Israel. This comes from Genesis chapter 28. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba. He went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, 
I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken for you. Now, I quoted these verses back when we went through Genesis chapter 12. And I'm requoting them now just to make sure that we avoid any confusion or any misrepresentation. Because countless people in the past have misrepresented these verses. And even today, people are fighting over this land which was made and promised to the people of Israel. Our heads are thick, and there's no doubt about it. And sometimes the only way to get through our thick skulls is to hear the same thing again and again and again. And when I was thinking about this verse today, I will tell you that my mother listened to the salvation call on one guy's radio station every day for years. And one day, he just said the same thing he said day after day after day, after day after day. She said, I need Jesus. She'd been listening to him for years, and he'd said the same thing, and he says it to this day, same thing. And finally, she said, I need Jesus. Our heads are thick, and we have to have these things repeated sometimes a million times before it suddenly dawns on us. This land of Canaan, which today is the land of Israel, has the same owner as it did in the past. And that owner is God. And he has given it to one nation on earth, and that is the people of Israel. When we fight against this, we are only bringing God's wrath down on ourselves. In fact, the judgment of the nations, and I mean this sincerely, I'm doing a revelation study right now, and today I typed up something about the Battle of Armageddon. That is coming, and probably very soon, because of the world's robbery of this very land from their rightful inheritors. And here's what it says about that in the book of Joel. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, which he's done, he's brought them back to the land, I will also gather all nations and bring them, them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means the valley where the Lord judges. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. That's already been done. They have also divided up my land. That's never happened in human history. But I can tell you what. The captives have been brought back and the nations are working right now. While we're having this sermon, there are people sitting in rooms around the world devising ways of getting the Jewish people out of that land or at least taking most of it away from them. And that is what God says will bring all of the judgment of Armageddon on the world, is that one action, dividing the nation of Israel because it is God's land. That's how important this verse is that we're looking at today. Regardless of whether you like the Jewish people or not, it is irrelevant. God has planted them in Israel and planted they are going to stay. I'm gonna read you one more verse from the book of Amos. It's the last verse in the book of Amos. It's chapter nine, verse 15. In the last three words, or four words, listen to who signs the book of Amos. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. Okay, we know that that never happened in history before because they were pulled up twice. They're now back in their land. They've been planted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. He has spoken, and it will come to pass. Let us pray for the people of Israel and for the land of Israel and to deliver them from their enemies who are both in the church and at the world at large. And when you make your vote, as I said, your vote on abortion and your vote on Israel are the two most important votes that you can make. I don't care if you like Democrats or if you like Republicans or if you like Ron Paul. All I can tell you is that you better check out those two issues and make sure that you do not vote for somebody that supports abortion or America will be swept away or Israel because those are the dividing lines of God's judgment on this earth. Yes, God has been faithful to his unfaithful people, Israel, and he will be faithful to you as well. Earlier, we read that God told Avram to walk before him and be blameless. We're admonished to do that as well. As I said, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. But there is a problem in our lives, and it is called sin. Let me take just two minutes and explain to you what I explain every single week what sin is and how it affects your relationship with God. I read a verse from you from Romans 3 today for you. It was all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. We go to work, we get paid because we have earned our pay. We die because we have sinned. That is the wages that we have earned. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
it is a gift. It's not something we earn like death because of our sin. We have been granted a gift if we will only accept it in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill, and then he gave his life up as a sacrifice or a substitution for our sins. It's the greatest offer in the universe, the greatest offer that will ever exist. And all you have to do is reach out by faith and say, I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins, and he will grant you everlasting life. Now, we've already sinned. We're going to die. How do we know we have everlasting life? It's because Jesus didn't sin, and he came back out of the grave to prove that he is God and that he never sinned. And he has offered that to us. If we accept him, we move from Adam, we move to Jesus. Jesus will never die and therefore we shall never die if we simply call on Jesus in faith. That is the offer of God, that is the gift of God. Please don't let the day go by if you've never asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. One more thing, you know I do this every single week and we'll be done in just about two minutes typed up a poem for you on the verses that we looked at, Genesis 17, 1 through 8. It's called A Father of Many Nations. When Avram was old, an old man of 99, the Lord appeared to him, and there he said, I am Almighty God, the Creator divine. I am the one whom Melchizedek blessed over wine and bread. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Yes, this is the thing I'll do. Then Avram fell down upon his face, and God talked with him as he lay prostrate. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. These words to you I once again restate. You shall be the father of many nations, and you will be remembered for all generations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but now Avraham shall be your name. For I have made you a father of many nations. You will be great, a man of everlasting fame. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you as well. Kings shall come from you by the bowlful. From you the nations of the earth will swell. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants in their generations for an everlasting covenant, one you know is true, to be your God and theirs, eternal expectations. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, a promise I will attend to, it will never fail. Of this there is no danger. It is an everlasting possession and I will be their God. It is given to Israel. It is their land on which to trod. Let us thank the Lord for his faithfulness, for he keeps every promise he has made. We have the surety of a heavenly promise because of Jesus for our sins. He bestowed his righteousness, a wonderful trade. Hallelujah and amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness to Abraham. Thank you for your faithfulness to his seed since him. All of these things point to the absolute surety as the ground that is under our feet right now that you will fulfill every promise that you have given us in your word, including eternal life because of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. I receive it. I hope that every person here has also received it and that they will walk on streets of gold free from any sadness or any trials ever again on some glorious day when you come for your people. We love you. We praise you. All glory, all power, all majesty belong to you alone. And it's in the glorious and exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.